All right. Well, good morning. Well, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Jonah. That's page 774 in your pew Bible. Now, we don't have pew Bibles here. I wish we did, but I always heard that growing up. So anyway, if you have your Bible, please do turn to Jonah. This small book is somewhere in the latter portion of the Old Testament between Obadiah and Micah. And by the way, if you don't know where it is, there's no shame in looking at the table of contents. Okay, you can cheat. That's allowable. Check it out. I do want you to turn to it. If you don't have a Bible, we are going to put the verse on the screen for you. But I think it's good to be aware of your Bible, where these books are, and that they are accessible. Because I want you to read the whole book, even if you have not already, this week in preparation for a series. Well, today's title of our message is The Runaway Prophet from Jonah chapter 1. And we're going to do verses 1 through 3. You see, today we are beginning our new sermon series. It's entitled God's Mercy on His Enemies from this book of Jonah. In one sense, we're really just picking up where we left off last week on loving our neighbor. Yes, even our enemy. But instead of looking to the parable of the Good Samaritan, which we did and Al helped us with so well last week, this morning we're going 800 years back into the Old Testament, where we find really a short book called Jonah, named after the prophet himself, Jonah. The book itself is only four chapters and 48 verses. Only 48 verses. And yet it's one of the most well-known Bible stories. It's really simple enough for a child to understand. God gives a commission to Jonah. He tells him to go to the city of Nineveh. To the Assyrians, the Jews' dreaded enemies. And what happens? Maybe you know the story. Jonah disobeys. Jonah gets swallowed by a really big fish. Jonah is spit up three days later. Jonah finally goes to Nineveh and preaches, impending judgment upon the Ninevites. The Ninevites repent. Jonah sulks. And Jonah rebukes, excuse me, God rebukes Jonah. Well, that is the storyline. I do want you to read it for yourself. In one sense, it's simple enough. But it's also a deeply profound and challenging book. While this book is historical, I believe it is a true, real story, It functions in some ways like that of a parable. It has this certain punch or shock value that aims at the heart. Oh, it aims at Jonah's heart, but it aims at our hearts as well as it centers centers upon God's mission and mercy. So if the sermon series title is God's Mercy on His Enemies, the main point today in an introduction to Jonah is simply this. Get on mission with mercy. Get on mission with mercy. It's exactly what Jonah did not do, as we read now from the first three verses of this book. Reading now God's word, Jonah 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, And call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But 
Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we thank you this morning for preserving this very story for us. Lord, I believe deeply there are things that you want to show us this morning. Whether we've heard this story many times or this is the very first time. So we're asking you, oh Lord, to teach us. Teach us about yourself. Teach us about your very character, your compassion, your pity, and your mercy. And Lord, I ask that you would open our ears and you would even soften our hearts this morning. Amen. 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 Well, on September 22nd of this year, two terrorists strapped 13 pounds of explosives each to themselves and walked onto the grounds of the 130-year-old All Saints Church in Peshawar, Pakistan. They detonated themselves as innocent men, women, and children were gathered for a church picnic. At least 85 died. Hundreds of churchgoers were disfigured or dismembered, riddled with BBs and shrapnel that had been packed into the bombs for maximum destruction and gore. Did you hear that new story? Maybe you may have heard her story. Well, if you did, I'm not sure of your reaction. But when I heard the news, I was not thinking of mercy for these terrorists. There was pity and compassion in my heart, but it's for the loved ones who had lost people in this bombing. But there was no pity for those who committed this heinous act. For them, there was only contempt, not compassion. See, I can tell you that I just wanted, all I wanted was justice. And it's not wrong, in one sense, to want legal justice to be served. But in my heart of hearts, I wanted justice in the form of immediate judgment, of God's judgment, immediate wrath poured out upon these terrorists and this terrorist cell. Not merely as a payback, for nothing would bring back the lives of these individuals. No, but to save more lives. So such terrorists would not show up at our picnic today or any day in the future. Now please hear me. The pastor didn't say, someone's going to attack us today at the picnic, okay? Not saying that. going to be there with my children. But the point is this. How I felt hearing of that bombing, well, I suspect somehow that is how the prophet Jonah felt in the story today. His enemies were not radical Islamic terrorists. His enemies may have been more worse. Worser, more worse, worser. More powerful. 
and more numerous, the dreaded Assyrians. It's so easy to fault Jonah as we read this book, even as we read just the first three verses. But we may be a lot more like Jonah than we even think, as evidenced by my reaction to this bombing. So just change out the Ninevites, the Assyrians, for your own dreaded enemies. Maybe they are an overseas terrorist organization. Or maybe they're an anti-Christian opponent right in your backyard, so to speak, or in your adjacent cubicle. You see, it's not that we're necessarily against mercy. No, we want it. We need it. And those who belong to Christ, Jesus, we have received it. We have received the greatest mercy of all, salvation. And yet, we can be loathed to give mercy or to wish it upon our enemies. If this is so, church, may I suggest that your problem isn't with your enemy. Your problem is with God. To understand the book of Jonah in the first three verses, we must begin with God, his mission, his heart. If we are to be on mission with mercy, if we are to get on mission with mercy, we must first understand God's mission in this book. To do that, let's look again now at the first two verses of Jonah. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Well, your first point here in the slide, let's take a look at God's mission and his commission, and particularly the God of this mission that we read about in these first couple verses. You see, from the very first verse, God is on mission. At first take, this seems to be purely a mission to prophetically denounce and judge Israel's enemies. Why? For their wickedness, for their evil. But based on Jonah's reaction, based on his reaction, he accurately suspected that God's threatened judgment was to lead to something other than Nineveh's destruction. What did Jonah know that we should know? I think it's found in the very first verse in how God is introduced in our narrative. We read, quote, Now the Lord, word of the Lord, all caps, Lord, came to Jonah. The name of the Lord, all caps, at least in the ESV Bible, stands for the Hebrew name Yahweh. I doubt that name escaped the notice of the original readers, the Jews. And it shouldn't escape our attention either. Yahweh is the very name by which God introduced himself to Moses and to the Israelites in the wilderness. It was his precious name. It was his personal name. It was a name by which God was and is to be known, not only in word or in title, but in character and in deed. Listen to these verses in Exodus 34, 5 and 6. We read this. The Lord, that is Yahweh, descended in the cloud and stood with him. That's Moses there. And proclaimed, 
the name of Yahweh. Moving on to verse 6. Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Yeah, it's this God, Yahweh, the merciful and gracious, who is now addressing Jonah. And Jonah, he would have been intimately acquainted with mercy and grace, not just from reading Jewish history in the past, but personally as well. So let's take a look at this Jonah, this messenger of God's mission commission. Well, who was this Jonah? Well, first, clearly, he was a prophet. When we read the words, the word of the Lord appeared, in this case to Jonah, we'd be introduced to a common standard prophetic formula when God is addressing a prophet. This formula phraseology appears at least 100 times in Scripture. So Jonah clearly was a prophet. But can we locate this prophet, Jonah, in our Bibles, in history? I think we can. He is introduced in our story as Jonah, the son of Amittai. The author clearly seems to be linking Jonah with the prophet Jonah mentioned in the book of 2 Kings 14, verse 25. You see, this Jonah lived during the time of Jeroboam II. He was the king of Israel, the northern, the ten northern tribes. And this Jeroboam II, he was a bad, he was an evil dude. In other words, this guy was bad news. We may already have the slide up there. Okay, let me read it to you right here. Starting with verse 24. Speaking of Jeroboam II. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. In other words, this king of Israel, Jeroboam II, was no better than Jeroboam I, the first king of Israel. He was a stinking idolater, and he led others into idolatry. But then we read these quite surprising words that follow in the next verses. That is he, are we there? Jeroboam II restored the border of Israel from Labo Hamath, that is the northern border in Syria, as far as the Sea of Arabah, that's the southern border, that is the Dead Sea, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath-Hefer. And here it is. Why God did it. Why did God expand the territory of this evil Jeroboam II? We read in the following verses. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter. For there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven. So he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Did you catch that? Under this evil Jewish king, Israel was saved from their enemies and its territory actually expanded. In fact, during the time of Jeroboam II, Israel's territory expanded to the glory days 
of David and King Solomon. During Jeroboam's reign, there was a time of peace and prosperity. Even Israel's nemesis, Assyria, was no immediate threat. Why would Yahweh, why would the Lord do this? By his grace and compassion, by his mercy. And who prophesied that all this would happen? It was Jonah. Yes, Jonah, son of Amittai. Jonah lived and prophesied during a time when God was radically extending mercy to his wayward, covenant-breaking people through peace and prosperity. Jonah, as a prophet, knew as well as anyone that what he and his nation deserved was judgment. And yet, they received mercy. So let's go back now and answer some of our first questions. Who is this God who is commissioning Jonah? He's revealed as Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious. Who is this Jonah who's receiving this commissioning? It was Jonah, a recipient and messenger of grace and mercy. With this in mind, let's now read of Jonah's assignment given to him by God. That is God's mission. Again, verse 2. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So putting this all together, we can summarize God's mission in this text as follows. To go to Israel, excuse me, to go to Israel's enemies, Nineveh, to call out against it, to pronounce judgment in God's great mercy and compassion. As we'll see, it wasn't the calling out that Jonah had difficulty with. It was God's merciful intentions that would likely accompany such a prophetic denouncement. I.e. the thought, the thought that Ninevites might be warned and might repent. To understand Jonah's response, let's look further at verse 2 and then 3. Jonah was called to go to Nineveh, a city that was 600 miles northeast of Israel in modern-day Iraq. We're on point two, Jonah's response. It was a big city, perhaps 600,000 people by some estimates. It was an old city, a 1,000 years old at this time. And most significantly, it was the capital of Assyria, Israel's hated enemies. By the time of Jonah, Assyria had been threatening Israel's existence for almost half a century. But Israel had many enemies, as you'll read in your word, over the years. But what made Assyria particularly heinous was their brutality and merciless reputation. Many historians claim that Assyria was the most cruel empire in ancient history. They were known to flay humans alive, that is, cut their captors' skin and slowly peel it off them as they poured salt on their open wounds. They had perfected the practice of torture. But that wasn't all. 
They boasted that their god, Asher, was a supreme god who ruled all others, including Yahweh. And the Assyrian king was Asher's divine representative on earth. The Assyrians were a brutal, pagan, idolatrous people who showed no mercy. In terms of their military exploits and their idolatry, they were abhorrent to any Jew. They were the enemy. To these Assyrians, to these Ninevites, Jonah was called to go. But look at Jonah's response in verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and formed a ship, found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Instead of go, it's no. Instead of rising up to go, Jonah rises up to flee. Where does he attempt to go? To Tarshish. I feel like you've been to the dentist, by the way. You know, Tarshish. You know, you got the gauze in your mouth, you know. He went to Tarshish. Most likely this is somewhere in the western Mediterranean. Perhaps some would say southwest Spain. There's really no consensus as to where this city was. But there is consensus on this one point. It was the opposite direction of Nineveh. Jonah was trying to run as fast as he could away from Nineveh Nineveh, and God's presence. Twice in this verse, we read that Jonah went to Tarshish to flee the presence of the Lord. A prophet trying to flee God's presence. Jonah is a book filled with satire. And perhaps the greatest satire of all is this. You see what the reader knows? What even the pagan sailors knew, as we read about next week, is what the prophet should have known. You can't, church, flee from God's presence. I cannot flee from God's presence. You cannot flee from God's presence. Fleeting, it was futile. It was insanity. And it's the very nature of sin. What's interesting to me, though, is that Jonah didn't just say to God, nope, not going there. I'm just going to say right put. Say put right here in Israel. No, something was gripping and ruling Jonah's heart. So much that he would attempt the impossible, flee from the Lord. Not only that, he would pay for the impossible, pay the fare to flee from the Lord. Why would he do this? Well, his actions suggest something more, I believe, than simply a fear of the Ninevites. Something more than just an intense ethnocentrism. Or in other words, an intense racial hatred for the Assyrians. That well may have been in his heart. But those reasons alone may have just kept him in Israel, staying put right there, not going. No, but Jonah's actions, his fleeing, suggests more than simply a fear and hatred of the Assyrians. His actions suggest a fear and hatred of God. So much so that he wanted nothing to do with God, the God whom he knew to be merciful and gracious. In case you are in doubt as to Jonah's real motives for disobeying and fleeing, Jonah he finally does come clean. Fast forwarding to Jonah chapter 4. 
verse 1, we see that the Ninevites do repent. And God does relent from bringing disaster upon them. I have it here in the slide. Jonah's response here is most telling and most revealing. To read verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly that the Ninevites repented and God relented. And he was angry and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Can you hear the caustic, almost a toxic tone in which he may have said this? Lord, I knew it! That's why I didn't go! Because you're slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. I knew it! I knew it! You're gracious and you're merciful and I don't want grace and mercy for my enemies. I want you to annihilate them, Lord. But I know you, and I know your character. There it is. What is implicit in the first few verses is now explicitly stated by Jonah. The cat is out of the bag. Jonah's problem wasn't with the Ninevites. His problem, first and foremost, was with God, Yahweh. Let's be clear now. Jonah was not protesting God's mercy, per se. As a recipient of mercy, we can surmise that Jonah was very pleased for he and his people to receive mercy. I imagine Jonah was quite pleased to give the prophetic announcement to Jeroboam II that God was going to expand his territories to the days and the glory of Solomon's empire. What Jonah wanted was mercy for himself and justice and judgment for his enemies. God, excuse me, Jonah, Jonah wanted slow to anger for himself and with himself and his people. And he wanted quick to judge with all his enemies. Church, isn't that what we often want? It's what I wanted when I heard the news of that Peshawar church bombing. And while Jonah's fears came true, and God's sovereign mercy and compassion was extended not just to Israel, but yes, to their enemies. And Jonah was ticked. He was ticked at God. Jonah knew that his people, Jonah knew that his people were called to be a blessing to the nations. We see that repeatedly in the Old Testament. From the Abrahamic covenant, they would bless Abraham and his descendants, and they would be a blessing to the nations. I believe Jonah knew that. I don't believe he's protesting that. I think the issues with God went deeper. It wasn't God's blessing of the nations, which Jonah feared so much. It was this. It was God's judgment upon Israel through the Gentile nations, Assyria being case in point. For Jonah also knew the covenant obligations and ramifications of Israel's disobedience and infidelity, not the least of which was God's judgment upon them in the form of foreign invading armies. To quote one Jewish commentator, Jonah does not wish Nineveh to die, 
yet he does not wish Nineveh to live at the expense of Israel. In other words, Jonah didn't want the saved terrorists, the Assyrians, to come back and spoil their church picnic. And sure enough, a few decades later, in 722 BC, a spared Assyrian nation invades, kills, and repopulates Israel. And the northern tribes of Israel are no more. Jonah's likely fears had come true. Church, what is significant about Jonah is not that he was more than just an isolated individual in this story. I believe he also represents Israel's hardened heart. Jonah serves as a foil. In other words, he serves as a contrast, as an anti-hero to how we are to respond to God's mission of mercy individually and as a church, the new Israel. Friends, mercy and compassion will propel you to mission, towards mission, God's mission to bless the nations. And a lack of that mercy will repel you from that same mission. Why? Because a lack of mercy and compassion puts you in direct opposition to God and to his mission. Maybe you wonder why you don't have a heart for your unsaved neighbor, let alone your enemy. Why you feel so dull or even defensive you know, when it comes to speaking to your neighbor, speaking with them, serving them, giving the gospel to your neighbor, both gospel warnings as well as promises. Friends, I have asked that question of myself many, many times. There's a laziness on my part. There is a profound selfishness at times. There's also just the fear of the awkward as well. All of those come into play. But when I'm brutally honest with myself, connecting with my neighbor and loving even my enemies goes much deeper than that. What may be lurking in your soul and mine is a lack of mercy, a lack of pity, a lack of compassion for the lost. And beneath that, there may be something lurking even more deeply. It's called self-righteousness. It's a deficient functioning of the gospel in our lives. So I'm going to take time here. All this has led to this third point, our response. We are Christian readers reading the book of Jonah, and it's led us now to our response. It's application time, church. Christ has come to turn our contempt for our enemies into compassion, to get on mission with mercy. Consider what Christ has done for us, his once upon a time enemies. Make the contrast between the way of Jonah and the way of Jesus. I want to read an excerpt from, the, from what Bentley had mentioned, the new ESV gospel Transformation Bible. 
that I think helps us here. I have the quote on the slide. Jonah was in a good place, doing good work, enjoying a good life. Then God said, Jonah, I want you to go to another place and do a different work for the sake of people I love, people who are facing an imminent judgment. Jonah said no. Jesus was in heaven, ruling the universe by the word of his power, adored by angels. He was in the best place, doing the best work, and enjoying the best life. Then the father said, go to another place where you will be utterly rejected. You will live a life that will lead to torture, crucifixion, and death. You will become an atoning sacrifice for people I love who are facing an eternal judgment. Jesus said yes. Because Jesus said yes, I and you can say yes to this mission of mercy. Because I have received mercy, I can now show it to others. It's our keen awareness of Christ's mercy on us and his love for us that moves us onto mission. When we lose this awareness, when we lose our understanding of our personal need for mercy, the mercy that we have received in Christ Jesus. Mercy is aborted. And so is our mission. Here's the painful reality. Me personally, speak for myself here, I cannot drum up mercy. I can't even do it for my friends most of the time, let alone my enemies. I've tried it. I'm pathetic. I don't naturally have a merciful bone in my body. You can ask Cindy, my wife. In our home, when it comes to my children, it's pretty simple. No blood, no foul. And even if there is blood, the next question is, are they breathing? If they're breathing, I'm pretty good with it, personally. But there are certain injuries that not only grab my attention, but they move me personally towards mercy. You see, I was nearly in a fatal car accident about 13 years ago. I wasn't a car accident. It was nearly fatal. And it was all my fault. So I was driving to church one evening and looking into the setting sun, I crossed an intersection and failed to see an oncoming car in the fast lane. I was T-boned. The oncoming car smashed into my driver's side door. The moment before impact, everything slowed down into microseconds. My senses were heightened. To this day, I can still see the screaming face of the person in the oncoming car. But not just that, I can hear her voice, even though my window was rolled up and hers was as well. My car went spinning out of control, careening on the median, the median, and then spinning back onto the sidewalk. My car seat that I went to view later at the junkyard 
have been snapped in two. How my hips were not snapped in two, I have no idea. Well, I do. God's mercy. My ribs were cracked in a level state of shock. I tried to drag myself out of the back seat of crumpled metal and broken glass. The next thing I remember, there was a lady there, a stranger at my side. She wrapped me in a blanket. I was shivering on the side of the road, a bloody mess. And she called an ambulance. I think she called Cindy too. It was a lady who worked at the nearby 7-Eleven store. And she had seen the whole accident. And she had ran out to me. But to the church, to this day, if you mention a car accident, you have my attention. And you have my mercy. If you mention crack ribs, I feel your pain and horror. I wince every time you cough. I wince every time you sneeze. And I wince every time you laugh. Because I know the pain of broken ribs. I've been there. And if I've ever seen a car accident like the one I went through, I'll be there as well. I hope I can be the lady who ran out of that 7-Eleven store for me. I hope I can be the guy, I don't even remember him, who helped me out of the car. But I can tell you one thing. Mercy will move me. It doesn't matter if that person in the car is my enemy or my friend. Mercy moves. Mercy activates. You see, that car accident, church, was nothing compared to the wreckage of sin in our lives prior to knowing Christ. We weren't just sitting there on the sidewalk in shock with a few broken ribs and a bloody bruise and burnt face. No, we were dead, dead in our sins and trespasses. And Jesus Christ left heaven and came to earth to save us. He said yes, where Jonah said no. And by his death on a cruel cross, we are saved. We have been spared. And by his spirit, we now have new life. This is the mercy we have received. It's a saving mercy. It's a healing mercy. It's a resurrection mercy. And as recipients of such mercy, God is calling us to be agents of his mercy. Yes, even to our enemies. That means serving our enemies, loving our enemies. Yes, as Jonah did, warning our enemies. And yes, preaching the gospel to our enemies. And if we've truly understood the wreckage of sin and experience God's amazing grace and mercy, I can tell you one thing. We're going to help that person out of that crash car. We're going to run out of the 7-Eleven. We're going to call 911 because mercy moves us to mission. And it doesn't matter who is in that crash car. It doesn't matter if they are our political opponents. If that person is a strident abortion rights advocate, that person is in a same-sex marriage or advocating for same-sex marriage, it doesn't matter if that person has mocked you personally for years or hurt you in the past. Mercy doesn't first interview the bloody crash victims before deciding to help.
Oh, I see you're on the side of the road there. Uh, just personally, before I start here, uh, so who'd you vote for the last election? Ooh, that's your name. I saw your nasty comments on Facebook. Hey, is that a coexist bumper sticker in your car? Is that a Darwinian fish on your car? No. Mercy doesn't do that. Why? Because mercy has been right where they are, in the pain, in the brokenness of sin. Those who have received mercy will give it, and those, they will recognize the need. No matter how a person looks, dresses, or speaks. And listen. A person of mercy will extend mercy, even if that person doesn't see the need for mercy themselves. Even if that person who is lying on the street corner in a bloody mess with broken ribs denies the fact that they had even been in a car accident, we will extend mercy. And this church may yet be the hardest thing to swallow. You ready? Mercy moves us to mission. Even if the person survives, never thanks you, and then runs you over in a car on some side street in the future. Listen, church. What people do with our mercy and what God does with it is God's call, not ours. In the end, it is God's mercy, not ours. Mercy will propel you in our mission to connect with neighbors. Yes, even your enemies. And lack of mercy will repel you and me from mission. It will ultimately send you running in the other direction. May we as a church learn this lesson from Jonah, the runaway prophet, as we travel through this book. And this is my prayer, that we would not have to learn this lesson ourselves the hard way any longer. May God soften our hearts this morning that we may learn God's ways by the cross of Christ and not the crucible of disobedience. Why? That we, church, may get on mission with mercy. Worship team, let's come on up. We just quietly bow our heads. We're not done yet. I do want to pray for us. Alex, if we can do Come Thou Fount, I'd like to do that song in closing. Let us pray, church. Oh, Lord. Lord, we're asking this morning the impossible. We're asking you to give us mercy. That's not impossible for you, but for us to be able to give it. Lord, there is an awareness, I believe, this morning among many of us that we can't manufacture such mercy, but only as those who have truly received it and are aware of it can we then give it to our neighbor, even our enemy. So Lord, we're asking that you would do a work in our heart this morning, that we would stop pointing the finger at our neighbor, our enemy, or you. Oh, that we would point to you.
but would not be in judgment or in bitterness or in anger. That we would point to you and your mercy as seen so poignantly in the cross of Jesus Christ. Your mercy for us. And may that motivate us this morning as we sing, even now. Amen. Well, church, one of the reasons we gather on Sunday is to awaken and stir our hearts and our mind and our soul to the truths of the gospel, to the mercy of God. It's why we keep preaching the gospel to ourselves long after we've heard it for the first time. We need mercy. We need it now. We forget, don't we? So we're going to sing a last song in response. And I want you to look at the words of come now, found of every blessing. I want you to look at the words. And we're going to look at these words, and we're going to squeeze every morsel of truth and experiential truth that we know that God has rescued us. And we're going to sing it for those, because we've experienced it. We know it. And for those who haven't, I want you to sing it that you may experience this mercy. But not just that. We're going to sing, Lord, and say, I still need this mercy. It's your mercy that keeps me saved to the day. Lord, I need mercy to bind my wandering heart, the runaway prophet, that I may become a run-to disciple of yours. I need your mercy. So we're going to sing it. Think of the words. And we're singing it not in isolation. We're singing it together. It's like we're joining arms now. We're saying it to God and to one another. We are recipients of your mercy. Lord, give us more mercy. We need it. Why? That we may give it away to our neighbors. So with that in mind, let us sing. Let's rise and sing this last song.